Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> Another beautiful day on the Victor Bravo Golf Course. The sun is shining, the birds are about, and there's a sudden pause in the crowd. Michael Michelson steps up to the tee box. 15th hole here, drivers recommended. <laughs> oh, is he a caveman? Because it's suddenly clubbed that one. What do you reckon, George? <laughs> I mean, did he hit that with the dictionary? Because that was a terrible read. <laughs> G'day and welcome. This is Golf. Andrew Datto is my name. I'm in Melbourne and I have something very special for you. His name is Ross Baker. He is to golf and golf history what Glenn A. Baker is to the music industry in Australia. He is the knowledge. He holds the history. He is incredible. He works out of a shop called At Golf at 497 North Road, Ormond. I tell you that because I really think you should go there. He works there with Henry Cussell. And um, at the back, there's a shipping container that is literally full of golf clubs, and it's one of two that he has. So Ross started early in life, got an apprenticeship, and he'll tell the story himself just to let you know what and how it starts. And it was not never about it wasn't about playing golf; it was about being part of golf and also fixing golf clubs. So that's what he does, and he makes his own, but they're hickory. So, but it's not just hickory, it's everything. It's everything you can imagine. And that's what this podcast is. And I hope it is. It's everything you can imagine about history and about golf and about passion. It's Ross Baker. And I assume we'll be doing more of these with Ross because his knowledge is extraordinary. We started with how'd you get into golf? I started caddying for my father when I was about 10 and he used to play it in a social club at Sandringham Golf Links in Melbourne and uh, I started caddying and then I started playing a bit and by 15 I was pretty well hooked on it and I spent most of my time at Wattle Park Golf Course um, in Burwood and... um, Got to work, started to work in the pro shop on weekends and uh, when I was 16 I decided I'd leave school and uh, take a job as a, well, assistant professional we called it then, but trainee professional. So you, the plan was to do your ticket and... So just just to go back, when you first, when you first found the game at 15, yep. what was it about it that you loved? Oh, look, I, it's a while ago now. I don't really know. It just got me in. I just, um, it was a game, I don't suppose I'd ever really been into team sports and it was a game I could play myself and, uh, yeah, uh, if I didn't have a mate, well, I could still have a hit and uh, what happened was up to me. Yeah. Uh yeah, so... Do you still feel the same way about golf now? Are you still playing? Well, uh, unfortunately, I'm not playing at the moment because I've got a bad hip. They reckon I need a hip replacement. and uh, But prior to that, I'd only been playing sort of nine holes a week. You know, I, I sort of... Sounds a bit crazy in a way, but 
um, my golf club making, my golf club restoration has sort of been my, my life. Um, I, I learned back when I was a trainee that playing wasn't going to be my thing. <laughs> was, that, was that disappointing? No, no, not at all. <laughs> okay, good. No. Um, I, because I loved the hands-on stuff. I, I loved making things. I loved, um, yeah, working on whatever project it was. But when it became golf clubs, well, I loved wor- working on golf clubs. And, uh, yeah, I, I soon realised that at the bench... Working on golf clubs was my thing, not playing. Okay. My only, uh, the thing that sort of spurred me on in terms of playing was to get my cards in so that I could become a fully flung professional, you know. But so, so even to do, when you were doing your traineeship, you still had to be at a certain level of golfer, didn't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. In fact, um and probably a bit disappointingly, the PGA, and look, sorry, I'm not flogging them or anything, but uh, the whole thing about the PGA was playing. And even then, even though we did do a fair amount of um, uh, golf club making, uh, golf club restoration back in those days, it, there was little emphasis on on working at the bench, it, the, all the emphasis was on playing. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the interesting things when you talk to the older pros and they talk about how they had to be able to put a wood back, a shaft back into a wood, which was taking out the, the pin yeah. and getting it and finding the pin and things like that. Do you, do you remember your first set of clubs or the first set of clubs that you fell for? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, before I started as a trainee... Uh, Mum and Dad had uh, bought me a... Well, my first set was just a basic short set, uh, beginner's set, which was sporting autographs. Uh, So it was a 3579 irons. Um, I later got a sand iron and a two-wood. Right. That was my first set. Do you still have them? No, I haven't got... (laughs) I haven't well I haven't got that set but I've got heaps of sporting autograph irons. Okay. The reason I ask is that because at the back of the um at golf shop is a, a shipping container. Um it's just a regular size shipping container. 20 foot container. 20 yeah. foot con- oh, so it's a slightly smaller one. So and it's full and it's like literally full of history and golf clubs. So yeah. I I thought it wouldn't be so strange for you to have your first set hidden away somewhere, given that you are a collector? Well, I've got... Yeah, I haven't... I, I must admit I haven't got my first sets. They went into a higher set at Wattle Park Golf Course. Yeah. Uh, and then my, my foot, first full set was a set of Slazinger Nicholas Mark IIs. And actually, I haven't got those either because I remember selling them to... to um, give me the money to buy my third set, okay. but... Sorry, and what was your third set? And then my third set was <laughs> the first set I got as a trainee and that was a set of PGF status Mark threes. Right. Which, and I'd have a dozen sets of status Mark threes. Uh, I've been sort of besotted by PGF ever since. I've been really, it's one of my main history topics is how... PGF became PGF um, and what clubs they had and, yeah, that's because they're an Australian company, so I don't know, I'm starting to digress, which I do all the time. but no, that's, that's but, fine. Um, Australian clubs are my number one history topic. Okay. Uh, so PGF, now, I don't know why I think this, but if I was going to buy... A historic set of clubs, they wouldn't be the first set I would try and find. Like I, like I've found PGF putters and things in op shops, and and I've never gone. Oh yeah, it's a PGF. Have I got that wrong? No, you haven't. Um, sadly, and people will pick me up on this, but PGF 
in terms of their make the making of their best clubs started to peter out probably in the nineteen eighties. Yeah. And a lot of the but it's true for for a number of the Australian brands. Um by the eight by the sorry, the nineteen eighties, uh nineteen nineties, you know, our Australian brands were almost gone. Uh, some of them, and I, I'll talk about that in a little while. But uh, some of them stayed on, but with help from other, other parts, I suppose, other other companies. Um, but yeah, I just love the Australian-made stuff, and so on the history bandwagon, I've sort of wanted to. Uh, well, delve into it as much as I could, find out as much information as I could. Okay. But, yeah, no, you're quite right in saying, no, um, you haven't really seen any PGF collectibles, but... Oh, no, no like, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I haven't... Like, I think I'd rather... If I found a Spalding or a... Oh, a Slazenger something, I'd get yeah. more excited and think it was better... But that's. But I have no idea why I carry that particular snobbery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's not snobbery. It's just the way the company, PGF, its halcyon days were probably the nineteen seventies, and from there, it sort of declined in a way. People say shock horror. You know, uh, Walkinshaws. You know, run it now and. Um, you know, they wouldn't perhaps like me to talk like that, but uh, in all fairness, the 1970s, uh, the the Kel Nagel era, yeah. Kel was prob- probably their best ambassador, I guess, and what a lovely man he was, a great man, and, and, uh, and so it was almost as if there was no one to... To carry the baton after after Kel, okay. But uh, look, sorry, I'll get off onto other tangents. If that, you, that's fine, no, no. That, that, I mean, I think that's the whole point. Well, all I was going to say was um, probably the driving force behind PGF was uh, Claire Higson. Claire being a man's name, not a a lady's name, and Claire Higson started off very early with East Brothers and. PGF was an amalgamation of East Brothers and Chesterfield. Uh, And a fellow just found out quite recently um, that that actually occurred in, or on paper in 1956, but it really, um, there was no evidence of the amalgamation until around about 1980. Uh, Sorry, sorry. Uh, 1960. God, I'm jumping ahead of... So, <laughs> it's too yeah. much history out there. So, uh, yeah, look, I end up... You, you get that many uh, dates and times and things in your head. But, yeah, so uh, we didn't really see the evidence of the name PGF, Precision Golf Forging, on clubs until about 1960. Okay. And why that... Why it wasn't more back in 1956... We can't really say at this. It's still a, a work in progress, the history of that. Uh, but but fair to say, you know, it it definitely was an amalgamation of East Brothers, which started in 1932. Yeah. Is it East Brothers Australian as well? East Brothers is Australian as well. And Chesterfield? And Chesterfield, uh, yeah. And so I've actually got... Um, East Brothers clubs in Hickory Shaft and Chesterfield clubs in Hickory Shaft. Now, there's two, you know, uh, they're as rare as rare. Yeah. But, you know, but then people consider East Brothers and Chesterfield as, especially in the steel shaft era, as almost common or garden, you know, throw away stuff. Yeah. You know, nothing there to, nothing there to keep. Um, so is so is there? I guess this is the thing for 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 us as you know when you go to an op shop or something and yeah. and you find old clubs. Yeah, is there any value to be had? Like, yeah. I mean, I know there's emotional and spiritual value. 
But yeah. is there a financial value as well? Well, no. I, um, and the, what did you say, emotional and spiritual value? Well, you know, well, uh, well that's, that's me. Yeah. And I w- would, nothing had pleased me more, Andrew, than uh, people starting to take note of Australian clubs and, and therefore, you know, they only become a value if people want them. Yeah. And because people don't want them, they're of no value. Okay. And that's very, very sad. And actually some, well, collectors in general are doing themselves a disservice by saying, oh, that's, that's common Australian, I don't want that. Yeah. They're, they're, they're actually very silly because there is some, and I could show you, but, you know, we're on, we're on air, not on on TV, but um, I can show you uh, evidence of early Australian clubs that that I place far, far greater um, emphasis on than clubs from overseas. Okay. What is it about the history that you you personally like that, that makes you feel not one but two shipping containers? With golf clubs, <laughs> and what, that you have to sort as well. Well, almost in a way, it, it, it's almost. Well, I, I want to I want to retain the Australian history. It really uh, makes me sad that most collectors would rather collect something from St Andrews than collect something from Morty Alec in Melbourne and yeah. I'll tell you that story perhaps a little bit later but uh, and and I know why one of the main reasons why collectors aren't drawn to Australian clubs is because there's no book on Australian clubs okay so there's no easy source to go no so, so put, to put this in perspective so you're the book basically so you personally are the book. Well, I, look, I, and you sort of flattered me and perhaps turned me a bit red when you said I'm the go-to person in Australia. And, um, uh, you know, look, I'd like to think there was 10 people in Australia that... But, All right, so you're one of the books. But, <laughs> but, but unfortunately there's not, and there's not by default. Yeah. Because these other guys, they don't recognise Australian history. They... Okay. And and the the books that are out there tell you about Scottish clubs and English clubs and American clubs and there's any amount of information on them, and so straight away the collectors home in on those and rightly so, um, and there and there's values on them and and but also there's the the love of the game and oh this come from St Andrews and it's the home of golf and yeah. and and I'm not contradicting that at all and that's that's great and we we need to have that but but also is that important to Ross no not really because if you want to research clubs made in St Andrews or uh clubs made in America will go to those two places and research it. You know, there's almost been this thing, heaven forbid we don't even have a National Golf Museum here in Australia, but uh, but what smaller museums have sprung up in Australia, uh, th- there's still been an emphasis on clubs from St Andrews and clubs yeah. from Scotland and, and clubs from America... Um, and I'll walk in and say, well, where's the Australian clubs? And they sort of look at me blankly as if to say, well, what part of Australian <laughs> clubs do you want to, yeah. do you want to collect? And, and that... Well, is that, pro- is that the problem is that there's not a, there hasn't, no one sort of decided that, that there is an, an Australian aspect. So whether it be East Brothers or, or the early PGF or the, I mean, like for instance, just in perspective of, uh, few weeks ago I spoke to um, Phil Baird and Ted Sterling and I showed them the clubs that I found at a tip. Yep. At a tip. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which are those St Andrews... I oh, know the Masters, yep. Jack Nicholas Masters. Yeah, the Slazenger Masters. Yeah. yeah. So I sent Ross a picture when I worked out that we were going to chat and I think you came back in about 
eight minutes and said, oh, so these are the celebration of the 1963 Masters victory by... By Nicholas. By Nicholas, an Australian-made thingo. Yeah. Right? And I and with the putter and everything. Yeah. So my heart sings like this and I go, I think I've, I've paid 20 bucks for them and a tip. Yeah. In the original bag, it's not a Masters bag, but it's definitely a 60s bag. Yeah. I'm going, this must be worth... Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Uh, and 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 that tells you why I've got two containers full of clubs yeah. because I don't want to see them go to the tip, but by the same token they're worth nothing. I, I, since the shop opened a bit over a month ago, you know I've got full sets of Australian irons there. Any amount and and history and I'll go into it that too a little bit later, but history will tell you these irons are as good, if not better in some cases, than any irons forged in the world. And... Do, 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 look, why, do you want to have a look? Why don't you show me and you can tell me and explain why. Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I think that's... And so yeah. just I'll just explain it. So the backyard, you've got the... Um, just as we go, the, the backyard is the shipping container, which I'll take a photo of and I'll put on my Instagram because it's unbelievable. And then there's an actual workshop workshop. So there's a lathe. So Mill- this... Milling machine. So the milling uh, machine, is that weird, getting the hickory shafts back into... No, 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 I don't... All my hickory shaft work and I'm pretty pedantic on that. I, I do everything by hand. So I don't like using um, machines really on anything to do with old golf. So all my restorations, everything in relation to Hickory Shaft Clubs are all done by hand and as close as I can establish to the way they were done 200 years ago. So what is it about the resurrection of the Hickory stuff, first of all, that you that floats your boat? Well, one of the things that, that spurred me on with, with the Hickory Clubs was... Um, I've got the ability to work on them. Um, they are clubs that can be worked on by hand. Uh, yeah, and oh, there's something there's something about them. All, all hickory collectors will tell you there's there's something about them. But um, but I mean the other string to my bow, so to speak, is the fact that I I make um, clubs the way they made them 200 years ago completely by hand long nose clubs and i can do i can do all that i i make the shaft i and i don't put the shaft on a lathe i i make it round by planing it the way they plane them in the 1800s um, so did you was there a point in your just going through and there is a, a look there's easily a dozen clubs aren't being re re put together is it is it the craftsmanship for you or is it the preservation of golf history for you oh well it's 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 both um it's both and and they they're they're joined together they're intrinsically joined together um when you're restoring a club you try to retain the history so if it's got a if it's a wood and it's got uh, stamping on the head, um, you try to retain that. Uh, you, you don't sand it off. Um, so, so yeah, um, you 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 were. <laughs> Uh, we're laughing at a at a shaft with an almighty bend in it. <laughs> I mean, it must bend it, from top to tail. Must bend an inch and a half. Back towards that, and you know, there's an interesting part part to that, and uh, you know, woe betide the internet because um, what's come out in recent years in relation to bent hickory shafts is that uh, they're starting to straighten them with a heat gun. Right now, that's just incredibly wrong, and incredibly bad for the shaft. So uh, do you wet them? Do you, is that what you no, do? No, no. Um, I take them back to bare wood. In other words, take all the shellac or varnish off and then I oil them and the oil I use is turps, turpentine. 
and I just keep rubbing in the turps, rubbing in the turps, and I've got a, a setup that I put in a vice, um, and I literally bend them back um, using the strength in my arms. Um, if if you put them, if you put the heat gun on them, um, then the shaft becomes rubbery, and it loses its tensile strength. Um, right. So you've got to preserve the wood for what the wood is. Yeah, absolutely. And so the the thing about the heat gun, um, it's wrong in terms of um, history in that the old guys never subjected the shafts to heat to bend them. And some people say, oh, yeah, well, what about steaming them? Well, if you go and look in the history books, steaming was used to bend timber, not to straighten it. Okay. And there's a difference. Oh, yeah, right. So, you know, yeah. you get a walking stick, well, it's been bent. It hasn't been straightened. So um, there, there's, a, there's quite a difference between uh, bending something with steam to keep a bend in it. Yeah, and straightening it. And straightening it. And, you-, and you know, a shaft, a shaft that's bent is prob- probably bent because it was cut cross-grain or slightly cross-grain from the start. Our best hickory shafts are actually pre-1900 because they were split by hand with the grain and by following the grain, they stayed straight. A saw can't differentiate grain. So if you put a... If you put a a piece of timber through a saw blade, the blade can't feel the grain, yeah. so it just cuts where it wants to cut. Yeah. In other words, it cuts straight and it cuts across grain and then when you set that to dry, it starts to pull out of out of straightness. Uh, that's not the right word, well, but you know yeah, what I mean. It pulls out of its kilter, yeah. Do you, uh, the, the, there's an interesting debate now with the old hickories and the reproduction hickories. Yep. Where, where do you sit in the use and the and the basic theory, as I understand it, goes, is that we shouldn't be using the old hickory clubs because they're too valuable and too scarce and and too much history. So we should be making reproduction clubs and just looking at the old ones. Now, I've, I don't have I don't have any reproduction ones. I've only got old ones. Right. I love using them. Yep. Because I know there's a history to them. And if they break, they break. Where do you sit on on that? Well, I probably sit differently to what people think I perhaps should sit. Firstly, um, they're not all valuable. In fact, I can, I'll can i show you a, a filing cabinet in the, in the container that's chock-a-block full of hickory iron heads, hundreds of them, um, and they're all... You may as well use them as boat anchors. They're all... <laughs> They're all common or garden, you know, and and one of the sad things with hickory clubs is that most hickory ironheads are too light, and and they don't play well because they're too light, and so I've actually formulated a uh, a method of welding weight back onto ironheads and then regrinding to to the shape I want so that it gives it more weight and it and it gives it a better sole and it makes them perfectly playable. So in terms of you shouldn't be using clubs because they're they're a part of history. Look, some are and and definitely, you know, I've got clubs in there that I wouldn't dream of using for hickory play. But 90% of the clubs that we come across are, are more than suitable for, for hickory play and, and should be used. Yeah. And in terms of playing with hickory, and um, the more the merrier, Andrew. So one of the things is, um, you know, they're talking about they shouldn't, we shouldn't allow um, replica clubs because the replica clubs in some way are, are better than the originals. Yeah. Well, that's nonsense too. Uh, is it? Oh, well, that's interesting because that 
Absolute nonsense. All right. And and where that comes from is, and and sadly, it comes from the Hickory players that um, that haven't got good enough sets, and they haven't <laughs> it does. got they haven't got good enough sets, um, partly through ignorance, um, and through a desire not to go to a person like me, um, and. And they're playing bad golf because the clubs don't suit them. Yeah, I mean there is that saying that if you if you have a hundred if you have a hundred irons, hickory irons, you might be lucky to find five and that that can make a set. So it's actually quite hard to find the ones that work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just digress a second. This thing here is that a left-handed, right-handed putter? It, it's it's With a, is that a hinge in the middle of that putter? Yeah. Is that it's so? Ac- it's actually a putter that I've made right. on the milling machine. That's what's sitting here. Yeah. So, have you? To what end? Is that so? It can be left and right. Is it? It can be left and right, and also it can be any lie angle you want, right. and basically any weight, because it's it's adjustable for lie angle, and also for for weight. Okay. So just to, I've, I'll, let me try and explain this. For the listeners, <laughs> there's the sh- the shaft. I didn't know you made your own clubs. There's the, the the shaft goes in at the I don't know, say a forty degree angle, and that's in a hinge, and so that can then move to the other forty degree angle on the other side, as if it would then set up as a yeah, left handed then a, a right handed. Or what? It's about um, it'll be I about maths. say seventy degrees okay. in terms of of lie angle. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, it can be it can be changed, but it was a bit of an experimentation by me of how you could make something adjustable without it looking big and unwieldy, and also something that you could um, change the the weights. So it's actually got removable weights through the body of the the putter, but after you remove the weights, you can then get to an internal thread that locks the lie. Uh, angle, uh, one way or the other. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's why the milling machines here because I, I haven't ever been content with just making things by hand. I, I love the other stuff as well. So when when you were younger, and we and we are working to we we're, we're working our way towards the shop. Come on. It's going to stop and talk. I can see this is going to... Um, w- when you were younger and you started tinkering, how was your tinkering accepted by others? Do you, do you know what I mean? Um, well... Like, they go, oh, buddy, Ross okay, is well, farting around with this. Well, my tinkering... Um, in my first three years as a, as a trainee golf pro, I went from... Um, knowing nothing about it to doing repairs for for three golf pros by the time I'd finished my traineeship. So, and that brings us to meeting Henry because I actually did repairs for Henry's father, George, at East Malvern Golf Course and that's where I met a younger Henry. In and Henry's your partner here. Yeah, 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 so around 1975, so we've sort of, 74, 75, so we've known each other for nearly 50 years. Yeah, wow. Yeah. It's good, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Just looking, so earlier you were talking about PGF um, and the early, the early PGFs. Yep. So there's a set of traditions, so these are like a very hard forged blade, and what are they? Yeah, they're they're status, the status. Forge, which are very similar to the tradition, uh, and, they're, and they're so that that status 1980s. is stunning, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but most people will say, "Oh God, we didn't ever know they made them." Well, and this again is this um, ignorance through through lack of. Well, lack of um, books or um, people that that are advocates for our for our equipment. Okay. What what lights you up 
in the shop and there's a stack of I mean honestly walk, walking in I, I list the I couldn't not smile at just the the amount of stuff and the diversity and the prospect of finding something that I've scabbed off a rubbish heap or a and, and I mean I mean nice stuff as well you know like oh absolutely hey there's nice stuff to be scabbed off a rubbish heap that's that's for sure um is well, this, what, everything sort of excites me, Andrew. I'm, I'm sort of, and that's the silly part about it. I started collecting putters, so I got over fifteen hundred putters. Um, and is, is there a best putter? I mean, no. It's, I know every putter is different for every. Excuse me. I'm just going to sneak past you. Yep. Every putter is different for everyone. But is there a? Is there something that was... Oh, he's got the zebras as well. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. No, you're, you're right. What you mean in terms of whether it works or not? Yeah. Well, there, is there like a best... Well, there is a best putter. Um, and it's a lie-angle balance putter, lab putter. Yeah. Um, is that it? Those yeah, ones? yeah. And... Uh, I got onto them about eight years ago, and and look, in saying this, I'm not for a second, uh, I'm not a salesman for the company. Um, I learned about Bill Pressey in the United States about seven or eight years ago, and we've had numerous discussions uh, and emails back and forward. And when I saw the putter that he that he designed. And the fact that he actually designed what we what he calls a revealer to show you how the putters how well the putters balanced and how badly balanced other putters are, I thought, wow. So this guy hasn't only designed a putter, he's also designed an apparatus to disprove uh, other putters' performances. Um and nobody's ever done that before. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the, the bulge face, I think that... Um, who did the bulge? You know, the round face. Uh, oh, God. No, not that one. <laughs> Shit. I mean, it's amazing. There's a... The, the fat lady swings. You've got the Peter O'Malley putter, the lots yeah, of well ping those, putters. Yeah, well, they're both by Bobby Grace, but I got both of those out of auctions in the United States simply because... Um, well, everyone loves Peter O'Malley and uh, as to Robert Allenby and both those putters come out of Bobby Grace's vault. So the players, when they won a tournament, just like Ping or Scotty, um, when they won a tournament, a gold putter went in the vault and a gold putter went to the player and these are Bobby Grace's out of the vault. And I got them because they were both Australian uh, touring pros. Okay. There's a there's a, a ram zebra training putter. So it's got two shafts and two grips. Yeah. And it says one 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 grip is for the student, one is for the teacher. Yeah. Which is bizarre. It that is. that would it was like a learner driver thing. Yeah, and but it's worse than a learner driver thing because it's almost like a learner the the driving instructor has got his hands on the wheel. <laughs> At the same time as the learner, and yeah. and one's pulling and one's pushing, sort of thing, and it, it's basically ridiculous. Yeah, it's like a Doctor Zeus push me, pull you. Yeah. Is this is there is is there something that you're? I mean, you've obviously got a stack of stuff. Is there something that you're looking for? Is there something that you? Is there is there a holy grail for of collecting? Okay. Well, for me, um, we'll go over here. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I mean, and look, this, this is, it's a sea of sevens and wedges, wedge heads. There's new wedge heads in the shop as well. So new Japanese... Um, Japanese wedge heads, the most beautiful hickories. Clothing, of course. Uh, there's a whole... Hey, you got the, the old big berthers too. Right, sorry. Back we are. So we're looking well, at the holy graph. Well, Henry stuff there, that, okay. and that's fine. But, um, yeah, so in terms of holy grail for me, um, this iron does it for me. And it says Richard Taylor... Malvin. R. Taylor. Yeah. Maker. Malvin. As in Malvin, Victoria Malvin. Yes. And that was where Melbourne Golf Club was and where they started in 1861. Sorry, go back a step, 1891. I'm going bad with my dates today. Um, 1891, Melbourne Golf Club started and the first pro there was Richard Taylor and he went there in 1891. So this is the... And, and have you... I mean, the grip is the most beautiful leather, but old and shiny. And So have you done anything to this club? All I've done is um, redone the, the whipping on the grip and uh, rub some oil into the shaft and uh, put some shellac on the shaft and redone a, a whipping where the shaft was broken. Okay. Is there a brand that you, that uh, apart from the so overseas brands, is there, um, look, I noticed a, a lot of Ping and a lot of Hogan stuff. Is there something that you think is better than anything else on the way through? I'll give you that. Um, can I just say before we leave this Richard Taylor on... This is the only known Richard Taylor iron in existence. Wow. So, I know. So, I mean, in terms of importance, to, you know, there's lots of old Tom Morris clubs. There's, there's a lot of Hugh Philp clubs. We only know of one Richard Taylor iron. Wow. And that's it. Okay. So, you know, people... And there's a wood. We know of eight woods. Yeah. We know of eight Taylor, Taylor woods. woods. I know where they all are. Yeah. Um, I have one. Uh, there's one at Royal Melbourne, and I know where the others are. Um, so do you covet those? Like, if you... Is it like someone having an old... Someone driving an old Holden or a Peugeot or something, and you leave a note on the window going, hey, listen, if you ever decide to sell this, call me? Um... Yeah, I don't. I don't really want them. Um, I've sort of, perhaps once upon a time, I did, but um, I just um, sold, gave um, some clubs today to to the professional at Victoria Golf Club and their hickory shaft clubs with old stampings of Victoria Golf Club and the pros that were there. And so I sort of got a, I got a kick out of, out of um, giving them, selling them to Paul Wright, you know, for, for his collection. So I'm more than happy in a way that people or places have, have got these clubs and yeah. they're looking after them. Okay. Yeah, they should go back to where they... Well... Look, should... Or will they be appreciated? Yeah, and and sometimes um, where they originated isn't the best place, but quite often it is, and quite often uh, if it's the place that they originated, they've got a better ability to tell the story than someone from away. Okay. Are we going to lose or are we in danger of losing the stories? Like, you know, when, we, when we lose you, for instance, yep. like when you yep. sort of, when your dates really get mixed up. Yeah. What are we, what should we be doing now to preserve it? 
well, we should be establishing a, a National Golf Museum. There's no argument. Why hasn't it been done? It's, um, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, it, I know this one in Stanmore in Sydney. Strathfield. Uh, Strathfield. Yeah. It, um, <laughs> there I go. Um, so there's, one, there's a golf history museum. Yep. But I, I would, you'd sort of think that there's almost as much here, almost, as there. Well, they don't... Well, they don't have any Richard Taylor clubs at Strathfield. Yeah. And, hey, I've been to Strathfield and, and it's a lovely little museum. But it's very much New South Wales-centric. Yeah. Um, there is parts of uh, displays, I'll call them, in, in Melbourne, in Victoria. There is a, a, a museum at Bothwell in Tasmania, yeah. which I had played a part in, in revamping. Yeah. Um, and that's very good, except that uh, Bothwell's... Um, 70k from Hobart and not in a good place for people to visit. No, I mean, I did drive past there and we were working for something else and I went, I should go there, but but I didn't. Yeah. So I've gone, I should. So it is that out of the way that it's... And it wasn't that far off the track that we were heading up to Queenstown or something. So, all right. Um, so let's get back to that other question of the what's... Is, is, is there a favourite? I mean, I'm very excited because I've just seen... A Honma, um, a Honma Hira, what is that? Hira Honma. Hira Honma, one wood, and I've actually, I think I've got the five wood of that one wood. Yeah, right, yeah. Do do you want it? No. (laughs) Um, Do you want my one wood? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hey, they made great, yeah, what can I say, they made great persimmons. When Honma started making their persimmon woods, they actually put a, a lifetime guarantee on them. If you ever cracked them, um, they'd replace them. Probably isn't the case now, but, uh, yeah, there's some great Honmar stuff out okay. there, that's for sure. The, the, these Cobra, Greg Norman, now you would say they're cavity back, but they're not. Yeah, they're, they're a sort of... Um, what would you say, like t- a t- tiny cavity yeah. um, to give you a, a tiny bit of um, of relief? Um, yeah, uh, a tiny good? bit of help. Lovely, lovely irons. They're forged, um, and of course the connection of Cobra to Australia is very evident in that. Um, Tom Crow, who was an Australian amateur champion, um, set up Cobra after he left uh, PGF. And, uh, yeah, so there's a big connection there between between Cobra in the States and, and yeah. Australia. I mean, I, selfishly, stupidly, I bought a set of these. Right. It's, but they've got a black shaft. A black cobra shaft. Oh right, okay. That I've never, I've looked, I've googled the hell out of it. I can't work out where they're from or what they are. Or anyway, I love them, but I don't use them. I yep. look at them. So is it the thing you should use? <laughs> find people, find like-minded people to go and play with your old stuff with out of the comp, and you know, just enjoy them that way. Yeah, look, um, unless you know that they're. Um, they're very valuable for whatever reason. Why not play them? Mm. Um, because they're not valuable, really, are they? No. They're saying no. all the wrong things. You meant uh, to go, my God, Andrew. They're, they're <laughs> just go and use them. And <laughs> no, no, you meant to say it's like you've just bought Powerball for $65 oh, okay. on eBay in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you didn't. Um, so is there a brand? Was that was Hogan the brand? Was that was was there one above all? So if someone's sitting there with a, you know, a bunch of their dad's clubs or granddad's clubs that they should sort of cherish a bit more than anything else. Well, for me as a club maker, there's there's no doubt that the person that catapulted uh, golf techno golf club making technology into the the well, the latter part of the twentieth century and the twenty first century was Carsten Solheim with Bing. Yeah, he he's it as far as I'm concerned. Okay, don't uh, okay. I'll argue with you. I'll I'll debate it if you 
if you're that way inclined. But no, he was he he was a great a, a ground changer or game changer, okay. if you want. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, what about for you? Like, do, are you gonna? You'll obviously keep fixing and refurbing and yep. selling, and I know the shop's new, so you'll. You know, your statement really is to 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 hold what we have. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, don't don't be one of the sheep. Don't just collect stuff because uh, the the Google hits tell you that that's what you should be collecting. Um, work out yourself what's collectible or desirable or what have you, and. Uh, for goodness sake, don't don't forget Australian made, uh, because we did make some of the best golf clubs in the world, and uh, and they should be recognised. We should we should do them justice. What was the was there a best Australian um, iron? I know the old Slesingers were pretty pretty sought after in the well, back. So was it the Max Fly with a black dot? Was that Max Fly? Oh well, you're you're talking about the Australian blade. Yeah, and I've actually worked with a fellow, and believe it or not, from England, who did a lot of chasing down the history of um, the Max Fly Australian blades, and as to a fellow in the US, did a similar thing, and I helped both with with their investigations. Um, we basically believe that the Maxfly Australian blades uh, came from a head shape, an iron head shape, that I basically call the power zone shape, which was a, a Slesinger Nicholas style. And I'll show you here in these irons. And if you, if you compared that iron... Oh my God, it's tiny. So this is a Schlesinger yeah. with a S with the crown on it, yeah. stainless steel, not not forged. Ah, uh, they're forged. Oh, they are. Yeah, they're forged. Well, I'll take that back. Um, see, there's another thing, Andrew. A lot of people, as soon as they see stainless steel, they think they're not forged. We were forging stainless steel, um, and it's quite readily forged, and and great clubs were made from it. They don't have to be carbon steel. They don't have to be mild steel. Oh, that's good to know. Um, yeah, so so this this head shape is identical to the Australian blade, the early Australian blade, okay. and it's identical to to what I said the 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 Nicholas Power Zone shape. The interesting thing about this set of irons is that they are owned by Greg Norman. The, these ones were. And yeah, I've I've got the certificate of provenance. Wow! They the and the woods. No, just the no, irons. No, just the irons. And Greg was selling up his collection um, in the last two years, and I got these. Wow! Oh, in that huge auction. Yeah. So there are things that you still want. Um, and well, this almost tells you the stupidity of it all. These come up on the US auction side and with a certificate of authenticity signed by Greg and I was the only bidder. Wow. And yet other things, um, Cobra irons, uh, Spalding irons, um, bags, Titleist gear... Um, got hundreds of bids and made thousands of dollars and this set of Slazenger irons, no one bid against me. Wow. So what which, did you, do which, I dare ask what you picked them up for? Well, 350 US was the starting wow. bid and that's what I got them for. But that just shows you almost the sadness. Um, you see, the Americans, they don't know the name Slazenger. Right. You see, Schlesinger never went to the United States. Schlesinger was born out of England and it went to the Commonwealth countries. So it went to Australia, uh, New Zealand, Canada 
and the Americans, um, because when Dunlop bought Slazenger and became Dunlop Slazenger, um, Dunlop took golf clubs into the American market, hence the Aussie Blades. Okay. Yeah, so so they didn't know Slazenger and they they thought, oh, no, they're no good, so they didn't bid on them and, and so I got them. But they're not only because they were Greggs, but they're an iconic set of of um, Australian irons. Yeah, and the two iron you're holding looks on the verge of unusable, doesn't it? Oh, well, it wouldn't have been unusable for... Not for Greg. For Greg. I did, I, look, I'll be honest, I did look at the the, the shorter irons and yeah. looking for the, you know... The, the, the wear the, spot. The wear spot. Yeah. But they're not worn, so... Okay. But they are but, bashed. But um, by the... I know they would be about 1969 or 70. Yeah. So then Greg was an amateur. Yeah. So I don't know. I haven't written to him or anything like that, but I believe he had them when he was an amateur or they were a a carryover set that he got in his very, very early... Well, that's uh, a, days of tra- of traineeship as a pro. Well, it's a it is a great pickup, and the store, it's it's literally worth coming in and just having a poke around, especially if you are a um, a bit of a collector yourself to see what you have and what others. You mustn't get almost nothing done with people coming in going, "What's this worth? What's this worth? Where'd you get that? I've got uh, one of them." Yeah, well, I've just got to be a little bit mindful of. The fact that I just can't keep gas bagging all afternoon. Yeah. Um, Take that hint. And it <laughs> <laughs> doesn't apply so much when... Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm pretty... I, I enjoy uh, helping people out. So yeah. if people have got inquiries, I'm only too happy to like your inquiry about the irons. Um, a lot of it I do at night time, you know, emails. I reply to emails and things at night and if it ne- needs any more researching, I'll I'll do that and I'll get back to people. And um, But my main thing is, as I say, Australian clubs. That's where I can help people. Ross, one last thing to ask you over your life in golf yep what were the best clubs that you played with oh gee (laughs) like there was a set there's a set that you went geez if only I had that set of oh no look I really there's too many there's too many almost like everything uh, even if it didn't tick the boxes in terms of playability. Um, probably the Ping I-2s, um, the Beryllium Copper Ping I-2s yeah. were one of my favourites. Because they were soft or because they were pretty to look at? Oh, or? They, look, the Beryllium Copper made them softer, but um, they weren't that soft. Uh, there's been some nice forged irons that I've played with that uh, that I really liked. Um, yeah, there's a set of McGregor's. Uh, the the they were actually a a, a re a recopy of um, the colour chrome, the McGregor colour chromes uh, that they redid in the 1980s from a from a 1950s head. They were a beautiful, beautiful soft. They were soft. Yeah. Um, so the more things change, as the saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. So blades from the 60s and 70s, yeah. looking at the blade, and I'm, I'm asking, I'm not telling you, that the blades you look at now, the blade blades, the yeah. Titleist MBs, yeah. the Mizunos, all yeah. those, yeah. then they're just not dissimilar in any way to what they were before. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And it just shows, and this is what fascinates me, that 
for the top tour players, they're still playing with an iron that had its roots in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, isn't and, it? And even earlier, you know, if you really want to look at it, um, you know, there was muscle back irons made in hickory shaft days. Right. Uh, however, um, they couldn't put as much weight in the head because there was so much weight in the shaft. Okay. Do you swing weight your hickories? Yes. Okay. The ones that I that I make. Yeah. Yeah. So just as a final, final, I know there's no final with you, but anyway, was there a putter that you had in your life in golf that you yearned for? So when your hip's better, you'll go, I know what I'm going back to. I Honestly, I didn't putt any better or worse with a number of different putters. You know, I had a few cushioned bullseyes or bullseyes, um, you know, a cushion that didn't get their name on it until they bought John Reuter out in about 1960. But, um, yeah, so there's been a few centre shaft putters that I've liked. There's ping putters that I that I like, quite a number of them, um, including the answer variations. I, I really like the, the ping answer four, which has got the spigot neck, or what the Americans call the shaft over neck, um, and the zing. I really like the zing because it had a shaft over neck, a spigot neck. Did you ever stick with a, anything for more than anything no, else? No. You just sluttered your way around everything, didn't you? Yeah, I just, <laughs> I just kept on, I just kept on using different, yeah, different putters, different clubs. And because I basically <laughs> wanted to try everything. Right. And so did everyone give it to you and they go, geez, you know, Ross, you could have been a really good golfer if you had stuck with one thing and learned how it worked? No, well, that wasn't going to be the – it definitely my swing, not my clubs. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so no, I didn't, uh, I didn't ruin my chances by changing clubs. It was never going to happen. Okay. Um, and, the, and just – sorry – with the with the say the ram putters for instance, or if someone's got something and and it it's got marks on it and missing paint and stuff like that, just leave it be. Yeah, look, there's two schools of thought. Some people redo them and they and uh, hey, that's fantastic if you if you want to redo it. But I I'm more or less of. Well, I don't know if it's the old school, but yeah, leave it alone. Um, play with it as it is. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's it's, it's and it's stripes. It's got a story to tell. Let it tell the story. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. promise that's it for now. <laughs> but we'll have another day. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Well, you'll find Ross at, at golf, and Ross is working with Henry Cussell, and the shop is ter- old and new, and lessons and putting mats and every putter you can imagine and some that you may not some you may definitely not imagine um and some great books as well so ross thank you very much for your time absolutely a real pleasure to speak with you yeah thanks andrew thank you very much for for taking the time to talk no it's good i think we've got more there's more to talk about but we'll save that for another day ross baker and to be honest, and from a purely personal point of view, it's so good to meet someone who just piss farts around with their clubs because he couldn't find a, a favourite. And I'm someone also who, you know, just, oh, I'll try this sand wedge today and, oh, that looks like a decent putter, for which I get a lot of strife for. But, um, yeah, it's, well, anyway, I loved him. It was great. I hope you enjoyed it too. Uh, keep listening because there are a stack of characters out there you may well know one. If you do, get in touch with me and we can have a chat. I'm at Andrew Datto and you'll get me on Instagram. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 